we tell our clients that in times of uncertainty like this, it's good to be bold, it's good to be de decisive, and we thought if there was ever a, a point in time to take our own medicine, this was it. That's Dan Kuzmik, a partner in our Stockholm office and the head of Bain Nordics, talking about the decision not to delay Bain's acquisition of Quartz, despite it being an uncertain time for the global economy. I'm Keith Bevins, a partner and global head of consultant recruiting at Bain & Company, and this is Beyond the Bio. It's a podcast that shares the stories of our extraordinary people from their perspectives. You can read their bios online, but those barely scratch the surface of who they are and the important work they're doing here at Bain. Today we'll talk with Dan about his background in the Air Force, finding his way to Bain, and leading the acquisition of Quartz, a Nordic-based management consulting firm. Dan, it's great to have you here. Hey, Keith. It's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, Dan, we've known each other for a long time. I think it was 2006, 2007, where we were flying from our respective offices down to San Antonio. But I want to fill people in a little bit on your background and maybe starting with school. Uh, you got your bachelor's degree from the Air Force Academy. Why the Air Force and why did you choose the major? What was the plan? I decided when I was a, a little kid, we were on a vacation. I grew up in Oklahoma, traveling to Denver, where I had an aunt, and we stopped by Colorado Springs. I was six, and you know, as a little kid, you want to be a firefighter or a policeman or a jet fighter pilot, and I chose the third. And so I decided when I was six, I wrote my mom a note, I'm going to go to the Air Force Academy, I'm going to fly fighter planes. And so from I'm pretty goal-oriented. So from six until until I graduated high school, that was... That was all I did. I, was, I started flying when I was a teenager. I only applied to the Air Force Academy. It was the only school I applied to for college. And luckily enough, got in and started there. And so I, I started that path. That was what I decided early on. Were you a pilot early, like in your teen years, or did you have planes all over your room? Completely. I started flying glider planes when I was 14. So looking back on it, I don't know what my parents were thinking, but I was up 3,000 feet above the ground in a glider by myself, 14 years old, just having an amazing time. And then I got my pilot's license when I was 17. And that was a big part of my childhood was the skill building of learning to fly, but then the freedom of being a pilot already before you graduated high school. How did the dream play out at the Air Force Academy? I guess we're talking on this podcast, so you're not a fighter pilot as far as I know. I'm <laughs> not. The dream, it, it still continued through the academy. I was flying gliders there. I was on my way to pilot training and still firmly within my sights after graduation. But then as life sometimes happened, kind of reaches up and, and says, no, you're going to take a different path. And in my case, my eyesight had had deteriorated. Not so bad. I'm not blind. I'm, I'm actually got decent eyesight. But at the time, I didn't, it wasn't good enough to continue flying. So Right at about 23, I had the curveball in life that said, everything that you'd planned on doing since you were six, you're not going to do that. You got to find something else. So then what did you end up doing in the Air Force? And what time frame are we talking about here? Yeah, this is early 90s. So kind of 93, 95, I graduated in 93. I studied electrical engineering. And so I was an engineer. And so after the pilot thing was clear that I wouldn't, wouldn't work out, I got stationed in Boston at a research and development base called Hanscom Air Force Base. And there I started working on radar arrays. And specifically, I worked on a program called Joint Stars, which was a airplane where you would strap a, it looked like a canoe on the bottom of it, which was a radar array that would look down and could take very detailed pictures. Today, you can do that all with satellites. But at that point, 
in the early 90s, you needed a plane that was a little closer to the ground. So that's what I did. I developed those radars with likes like MIT and Lincoln Labs, all based out of Boston. Nice. So you put your engineering to good use with the Air Force and then ended up at Kellogg, right up north from where I am right now in Chicago. Why business school? What was, the, was the plan to go back to the military after business school? No, I kind of knew that once I wasn't flying, that my passion, my passion really wasn't the military long term. I wanted to make sure and I fulfilled my service and my commitment for my education at the academy. But, but I knew I would, I would leave after five years. And I had a minor in business. And so I was intrigued by business, but I had no experience whatsoever. And as many people do, I've used a high quality MBA program to pivot in life and create a lot of new options that just wouldn't be there if I had come straight out of the military into the workforce. And so an MBA was the clear path for me and Kellogg it, it was just one that really fit me, fit me well in terms of the curriculum, fit me well mostly in terms of just the students and the populace. Uh, I just felt very at home there when I went out and visited from Boston. And it could have been my Midwestern roots growing up in Oklahoma, but it just felt right. And so then I matriculated there in 98. One of the things most people listening will probably know is every school sort of has its own vibe and its own stereotype. What was familiar and the same and encouraging or energizing when you got to Kellogg? And what was different from your military background making that transition? I imagine that there'll be people listening to this who are at the front end of that same journey, transitioning from the military to corporate or the military to business school. Looking back, what do you think was right at home and what was like, oh my goodness, what have I got myself into? Yeah. Well, I mean, for those that are making that transition, one thing you'll really notice is just the, the absolute freedom of being outside the military. There are a lot of restraints and a lot of commitments you've made to be in military service that once you're out of that, suddenly it's quite a unique feeling and jumping right in into an MBA program with a lot of people that are incredibly motivated, incredibly bright, and right at the beginning of bright careers, the energy that comes from that is really addictive. And if you land in a place where it feels like that group just shares a common outlook on the world, a set of values, the way they interact with each other and the culture, that feeling of energy and optimism, can really land. And for me, it did. But on the flip side of that, an absolute maddening sense of, I don't know how to do this. Why am I here? Right. I've been in the military. I'm, I'm not in business. You had ex-Bain ACs that were my, right. suddenly my classmates and were so on top of everything. And you're thinking, oh, am I in a, a bit over my head? So you had that element. But then lastly, I think a lot of what you get in the military is you get a sense of perspective. Having served in the military and have served above yourself and then having went through some stressful times that just happen as you go through training in the military and as you serve, it gives you really nice perspective. So it was hard for me to get stressed out about anything. It could be a big exam. It could be a big project that was due. But for me, I was always smile. So my stress level because of my military service was relatively low. Yeah, I remember getting feedback as an associate consultant right out of undergrad. I just didn't seem that interested in the work we were doing. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, it was pretty late at night and the team was really stressed out and you just seemed pretty indifferent. I was like, well, it was only 10 o'clock, like in college. Yeah. I, went to, I, went, I went to bed at two or three in the morning as an electrical engineer every night, like 10 o'clock. We were just, 
thinking about ordering our second dinner. (laughs) There was no reason to stress at 10 o'clock. Like, this is early. Yeah, completely. It's all relative. Exactly. So you ended up finding your way to Bain, I think, through the summer associate program while you were at Kellogg. A lot of people coming from the military and going to a school like Kellogg have literally all kinds of options, both corporate and otherwise. Why did you end up choosing consulting and, and Bain? Consulting I had focused on pretty early. Again, I was a neophyte at business. And so in my research, I, was, I, I had this book, literally the worst title of all business books. It was like 10 Hot Careers in Business. Literally, this was, <laughs> this was the, like, the depth of my, of my research. It's the mid-90s version of clickbait. Exactly. And so like number six, management consulting. What that little book did for me was it explained it at least in a way that I could kind of say, maybe that's a good option. And what it explained was this idea that you worked on incredibly important and very difficult problems that were very meaningful to your client. And you did that from day one. And if you work in a certain type of firm, a strategic right. consultancy that was a, that kind of started out as a generalist model, that you would do that in many different industries. So you're going to learn a lot about business. I thought for me, coming from my background, that fit me pretty well. That type of job. Cause I wanted to, I didn't know what industry I wanted to go into. I wanted to keep learning. Two years in business school just whetted my appetite, but it didn't really satiate me. And so, I decided early on that was a place I was going to start, but I didn't know anything about Bain versus McKinsey versus BCG, which my lovely book listed. If you're going to do it, do it at these three. So that was, again, I'm very goal oriented. So I'm like, okay, those are the three. I'm only applying to those. Luckily, it worked out. So I got offers from all those three in Boston. And again, back to my Kellogg decision, Bain was the place where to a person, senior partners and the most junior of the consultants Describe the business in a way I could get my head around it. Being from Oklahoma and the military, I just, I wasn't kind of enamored of like the consulting industry as something like, wow, I've, I've thought about this for a long time. And it was a little bit difficult to say, you give advice, but we don't make a product, but we charge for that. And how does that all work? And why would somebody do that? And the Bainies, they described it as you got to create more value at your client in an order of magnitudes than what you asked to be involved. And if you can make that work, then that's an investment return decision. That's, that's a compelling value addition to a CEO. And that's, that's something that they're going to want to do more of. And they're going to want their board to know that they're doing. And they're going to want to recommend to their CEO colleagues that they should be doing this with Bain. And I, that I could get my head around, that value creation, that results orientation. And then lastly, people didn't seem to take themselves that seriously. They were world-class at what they did, but didn't come across that way. And that just fit me. And so, yeah, jumped in on the internship in Boston. I want to talk a little bit about your journey at Bain. But before I do that, I just want to go back to that book really quick. Uh, True or False, commercial pilot and fighter pilot were on the list of the top 10 outside of consulting. No, commercial pilot, fireman, none of the cool jobs you want to do. The 10 hot careers in business, there was like international finance, there was consulting, there was forensic accountant. I mean, there was a pretty generic list overall. Thank God for the consultant add to that. Yeah, exactly. Um, you ended up joining Bain. I believe you joined in Boston, but you've worked all over the system. Can you talk a little bit about your path through Bain? I think, Keith, that's been a really great part about my career. And and if I look back, the, all the moves I've made within Bain were all because it was something in my life that made sense to move. Either it was a family reason or just an interest. It, it was never something that kind of Bain said, we need you to do this. 
maybe save for the Nordics, which was this last one. But up until then, I worked, I started in Boston, but then I came back to school. And then while it's my second year, I did some part-time work in, in, in your office there in Chicago, just to make a little bit of extra money. And because I just really enjoyed Bain. Once I graduated back in Boston, then three years later, I moved down to New York. And then as a mid-level manager, like I'd been a manager for a year or so, I transferred just an experience share to Amsterdam for six months, loved it, came back, made partner in New York, went back to Amsterdam for five years because they had an, a need. And at that point, started working in our private equity practice. Up until then, I leveraged my electrical engineering background to be more mm -hmm. a kind of a tech telco guy. Five years there, then went kind of back home to the Dallas office, worked in Texas, but a lot of time in actually working in South America and in Peru. And then got a call to say, would I like to take a, a servant leader position for a bit of time in the Nordics and come up and lead our cluster up here? So uh, that's been my path. And it's been kind of all over the place. And each one has been a huge learning and offered a lot of life experience as well as professional development. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing up in the Nordics, because we have a lot of people at Bain doing a lot of really great servant leadership roles, filling a lot of great servant leadership roles. And what you've done with the Nordic cluster, which is four offices, if I remember correctly, and now with the integration of Quartz, there's been a lot going on up there. So can you give a little bit of background on the cluster itself so that people have a, a baseline understanding and then maybe talk about where Quartz fits into that picture? Yeah. Bain has four offices in the Nordics. Our presence in the Nordics is 25 years old. It was our 25th anniversary last Christmas. Oh, congrats. Yeah, it was a huge party, which was fantastic. It was dark the whole day, but it was a huge party. So you couldn't tell when, when it was too late to come home. So 25 years ago, we started in Stockholm. About 12 years ago, we shifted from a model that was mostly kind of core Stockholm, and then we would work in the other Nordic countries from that base to actually opening up more formal presences in each of the other countries. So we moved up to Helsinki, over to Oslo, and down to Copenhagen. Those offices are about 10 to 12 years old each. And prior to the acquisition and then merger with Quartz, we were about 200 people across the four offices. Like most Bain offices, we had really kind of every industry sector represented, big iconic clients in the Nordics like Nokia, like Ericsson, like Lego, big oil and gas companies like Equinor, a really vibrant uh, private equity scene here in the Nordics anchored by the likes of EQT, which is a global fund. And so we do business in all of those areas. Probably biggest areas are advanced manufacturing, private equity, technology and telecoms. And then you've got some consumer products and things like that. So that team had grown double digits for 25 years and had really established itself. But at the same time, we had very aggressive competition that had also grown. And so as we looked and did a competitive scan, we did this broadly across Europe, we saw specifically there was an opportunity with an upstart in Quartz that had started 15 years ago from basically two or three gentlemen that were ex-McKinsey had decided that they wanted to create a new consulting firm. And their whole mantra was it needed to be results and it needed to feel like we were working with our clients, 
not for them or not preaching at them. And I don't know, Keith, if that sounds familiar to you, but... It, that sounds very familiar. It was basically, it felt like, almost like a, a parallel universe and that it was Bain, but 30 years later. And, and founded on the idea that they should be measured by their results. Founded on the idea that they have what we call answer first or the value addition part they called tackle and solve, which was create the answer. And what we call results delivery, they called engage and mobilize, which was all about make it a reality. And they said both those have to be equally important for you to really create value. And so the amazing thing as we got to know each other and we said, maybe there's an opportunity for us to team here and maybe us to become one team is that the underpinnings of their culture and their value set and why they do what they do were very, very similar and very aligned. They just had different words. In fact, when I met Hans Henrik, who spent an hour and a half just describing the company he had built, Hans Henrik Beck, who was the founder, at the end of it, he said, what we wanted to do was create a consulting firm that was the American version of strategic consulting, i.e. Bain, BCG, McKinsey, but with Nordic values. And my response was, well, I didn't know that those were Nordic values, but those are Bain values to me. What you described (laughs) are in fact my values and why I joined Bain versus McKinsey or BCG, because those values seem to be just the way they were described and the way they fit me. So we decided after the summer to start some real detailed conversations last year, and then formally announced our intention to acquire Quartz in November of 2019. And the day one was in the 1st of April. And the thesis was you take their business, which was about 350 people, our business about 200. You combine those two. And if you look at the capabilities and the client assets, they're very complementary. But more importantly, if you look at the team, those values and the way they do their work and why they do it seem to be very complementary. We become the number two in the market, essentially the same size as BCG and with a real opportunity to shoot for leadership and kind of reinvent what strategic consulting means in the Nordic. So we'd never done it in Bain, but we said this is a unique opportunity. And as you know, our firm has been on the last couple of years a tear to find growth and to innovate and to take bold moves. And this was just an example of one of those ways it would manifest. There's certainly a long history of us taking bold moves with and, and making recommendations that are bold with our clients. And we've taken many bold steps here as a firm. But you threw something in there a little bit casually, which was the April 1st date. Who knows when people will ultimately be listening to this, but we're in the middle of a global pandemic that really tore through the global economy sort of in that late February, early March time frame, which presumably is when you were in the final stages of closing the deal. I know a lot of people had to be discussing, should we delay? Is this the right time to do it? It sounds like we did. What was that discussion like? How did that all come together? And what was your feeling going through the whole thing? Yeah, you're completely right. I think in general, just attempting a merger, an acquisition of this size was new for us and carried all kinds of risks. But then suddenly when the world was turned upside down, and I will tell you honestly, the middle of March, I was basically living in Copenhagen where Quartz is, is based during the final negotiations on the deal. And I live in Stockholm permanently, or that's my home base in the Nordics. I left Copenhagen in March, and that was the last time I physically saw Hans Henrik, even though we kind of spent almost six months basically living together. He said, his wife said that I spend more time with him than 
than she does, which was absolutely true. But I haven't seen him now physically, even to this day. And since then, we have merged formally. We have went through our first 100 days. We went through our operational day one. We've won our first business together. We've combined our financial systems. All of that has been done virtually. And as you say, every time we talk to anybody outside, anybody in the in the press or anybody that was interviewing us to kind of understand what was going on, the first question was, why did you keep going and why didn't you stop or why didn't you pause? It would be very reasonable to say, let's hit pause on this, given right. we had all just basically shuttered in late March and, and we're dealing with the fact we couldn't all leave our homes. Completely truthfully, I, I don't think we ever once discussed, should we delay? We always discussed how we do things, but what we would do and when we would do it, those were all, those were baked because we believed in it. And we say a lot, but it's actually, it's really true as we tell our clients that in times of uncertainty like this, it's good to be bold. It's good to be decisive. And we thought if there was ever a, a point in time to take our own medicine, this was it. So April 1st, also choosing April 1st, April Fool's Day is also a bit of a dubious day one. But it seemed appropriate given what we were all going through. April 1st was the day. And so we had that day, we had what was supposed to be an in-person, 500-person kickoff of this new team, what we call the New Bay Nordic. We had a 500-person Zoom call and we had a whole day of content and getting to know each other. And at the end of the day, we had a toast where we had delivered champagne to 500 people in their homes and everybody had their their glass on the Zoom call and we had Manny from our worldwide managing director leading the toast and it was all virtual. It's gotta be the first completely 100% virtual integration of businesses that that's went through, but we're all dealing with those kind of challenges now. And culturally, you mentioned it's almost like reuniting long-lost siblings in terms of the DNA and the cultural values. Several months into it, what have been some of the surprises, both good and bad, as you look over the combined entity in the Nordics? Yeah, I think the great surprises is you, you take a firm that's built a position over the last 15 years through entrepreneurial tenacity, and you add that to the the kind of engine and the brand and the the global presence of Bain, and it's just like a a shot of adrenaline into the business. Yep. So the entrepreneurial spirit that came with our courts colleague and then now is just permeating not only the Nordics, but into Europe. And even we got a, guys and girls working in China, working in the States, working in Brazil mm-hmm. is just palpable. I mean, that's just fantastic energy. And they bring a set of capabilities, especially around things like commercial excellence, where they've just really built a spike. On that side... That's been a great, great surprise, and it's really taken hold a lot faster. You know, on the challenge is you can say it, and you can read it, and you can understand all the logic behind something like a deal thesis and even the core components of a culture. But what we found is it's just really hard for the heart to kind of engage in it until you meet people face-to-face. And... So the cultural integration is still, for me, a bit surface level now that we're in it about five months or so. And, and a lot of that is because you lose the context. You lose the ability to just be physically in the same room as somebody and see their facial expressions and their body language and, and build that, that intimacy that you just can't do well or sufficiently through 
through a Zoom call. And we're now coming back out of it, thankfully, in the Nordics. Yep. We've, we're leading a little bit in the pandemic and just because we've had some decent uh, trends move in the right way for prevalence of it. And so we're back to work. We're back to work at kind of 40% of our teams are working at any one point physically in our offices. But that, Keith, that's made all the difference in the world. Just being able to get some people together and remind ourselves that when we get together, when we share a beer together or a meal, you can't tell. You can't tell where we came from, Quartz or Bain. It just uh, it feels very natural. For us, looking at it from a recruiting standpoint and with my global team, you know, we all knew each other. And so moving to Zoom isn't the same as being in person, but I at least we've met before. We have history. We have legacy. What's great for me is as we start bringing people on board after the summer program and now this fall with another huge class of consultants in AC starting around the world, we're going to learn a lot from how you build those relationships from what Quartz did and what our interns did in terms of they've never been to an office. We have people that spent 10 weeks with us this summer and, and never met their office mates in person. What a unique way to start. I've said that too. We had 45 new starters across the Nordics this week. And same thing. I, I just, I said, look, it's, there's a challenge, of course, but what a unique time to kind of start a career and what a great time to bring all of your energy and creativity to this idea of joining this team and making it better because yeah. you're here. And uh, so there's never been a, a time more when we needed that energy and creativity than, than now. And as you say, I'm a, given your role, I'm, I know you, you're going to see that globally. And I just, I can't wait to see what our new class of talent brings because the, the impact they'll be able to have will be almost immediate in this new world. It's certainly an exciting time and a, and a unique time and one that none of us thought was coming when we celebrated New Year's Eve a couple months ago. Let me ask one question as we close up here. As you think forward, as you've integrated, at least virtually so far, the Nordic region and the opportunity and the potential we have to continue growing our business there, what gets you excited about the next sort of five-year horizon or five-year chapter in Bay Nordics as the guy leading the, leading the charge for the team? One of just the people and the team that we've built. It's all going to start from there. And as I see more of this team and more of them come together and more of the energy they're placing in the market to go out and just innovate with our clients, the more and more excited I am about the future. But if I kind of relate that a little more precisely to types of work and types of business, as we look, I think there's a, an interesting couple components in the Nordics. There's, there's this kind of tech and entrepreneurial orientation, but then there's also this classic raw material, natural resource-based economies. So there's like forestry here and oil and gas and the combination of those and the both the digital innovation, but just, just more broadly, the innovative ways and uses that we're now working with pulp and paper manufacturers to displace things like plastic, I think are going to start a new wave of relevance of the Nordic countries globally and sustainability, that element of it. And our course colleagues, another area that they were they're actually very leaning forward was in this idea of sustainability, working with one of the wow. world's largest toy manufacturers to say, okay, your, your product's plastic, so how do we deal with that? And how do we create a different future that has a sustainability component to it? They've been working on that in, in detail and innovating around that. I think that going forward with this team 
and you really look at any industry sector, and that's becoming more and more the, the type of topics that we're talking about and innovations that we're bringing, will be something that not only will be engaging in the mind, but will be very easy to engage with at the heart because it feels great to be helping clients and not only creating a better business, but a greater world. That's awesome. And as a parent of two boys who at one point were big fans of the product that that client made, uh, anything they can do to make it easier when you accidentally step on one in the middle of the night would be amazing. That is probably one of the most painful experiences you can have. Yes, exactly. Maybe the carbon fiber version of that is that it's a little less rigid. Maybe it's going to help you with that. <laughs> My goodness. Well, Dan, thanks for such an awesome conversation. It's always great to catch up. We are a long way from San Antonio over a decade ago, and it's good to see you and good to uh, hear about what you've been up to for the last couple of years. Hey, I've really enjoyed it, Keith. Thank you for the leadership locally on this and the innovation around this format. I appreciate the time and the opportunity to talk about the team in the Nordics. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Thanks everyone for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you'd like to share a review or give us input on what you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd really like to hear from you. Please email our inbox at beyondthebio at bain.com. We'll see you soon with some new episodes and thanks for listening.